into the Living Room Disciple podcast. Today, I have the honor of talking with Dr. Matthew Bates, a theology professor at Quincy University who has written some incredible books for the church. And so today, we're going to talk with him about his most recent book called Why the Gospel. I'm so excited for you to hear his wisdom on what the gospel is for and how the good news of Jesus the Christ shapes and forms us. All that and more on this episode of the Living Room Disciple Podcast, where discipleship finds a home. Welcome into this episode of the Living Room Disciple Podcast. We are here with Matthew Bates today, and I'm so excited to introduce you to him. Matthew, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, thanks, Nick. Uh, I'm a professor of theology at Quincy University. Um, This is my 13th year there, so I'm settled into life. Uh, I have seven children, and uh, that keeps me hopping. Uh, So my wife, Sarah, and I are busy um, shepherding those children along and uh, trying to survive also sometimes. But um, And I'm an author, and I write primarily um, around themes of salvation, the gospel. Uh, but my, my broader work is just in the New Testament in general, and um, my biggest main area of expertise would be Paul's letters within the New Testament. Uh, but I've written more broadly on the New Testament as a whole. So that's just a touch on me. Yeah, wonderful. Well, I recently finished your book, Why the Gospel, um, and I've also been shaped by some of your ideas about about faith as allegiance and um, the way you talk about glory as well. So I'm excited to dive into all of that today. Um, but, but a book with a title, Why the Gospel, is a little bit provocative because a lot of times we talk about what is the gospel, but when you say why the gospel, it seems kind of obvious because we're sinners and we need forgiveness, right? Um, so before we can get to why the gospel, let's talk about what is the gospel. Maybe what are some ways that, that the traditional evangelical definition in the United States has been a little misleading. Yeah, I would say that the typical way of presenting the gospel is to um, start out with a statement of God's holiness or his righteousness in some way, that God is righteous, and um, therefore then, um, in light of God's righteousness, when humans sin, right, they have um, transgressed against him and have violated both his righteousness, but also have contracted unrighteousness in some way. Um, So that needs to be remedied in order for humans to be um, able to associate with a righteous God once again. Again, or with a holy God once again. And so uh, God has provided a mechanism of salvation through Jesus the Son, and it's by his death on the cross for our sins that our, uh, our problem of unrighteousness can be taken care of. And so then um, if we trust in that message, uh, then we are able to go to heaven when we die. I would say that's a pretty typical way of presenting the gospel. And so yeah, the limitations with that are that it's not actually what Scripture teaches about the gospel at all. <laughs> um, it's uh, on the one hand, those things are true. It's a slight problem. Yeah, it is a slight problem. Uh, on the one hand, we would want to say those those are saving truths that all, all the things all the things I just said are true. Like God is righteous, humans have sinned. Like you know that we do need to have our sin problem taken care of, uh, and 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 that we you know we want to be in 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 the presence of God um, one day and. 
and uh, and that God has provided salvation. Uh, all those things are true. Uh, the problem is it's not what the Bible says the gospel is. And there's been, um, I think, a lack of careful attention to what the Bible actually says about the gospel and how it relates on the one hand to the kingdom of God. As um, it's clear, uh, as you read Jesus's teaching about what the gospel is, you read the, the four gospels, it's closely connected to the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, uh, depending on which gospel you're reading. Um, and then uh, on the other hand, it doesn't really respect what Acts or Paul says about what the gospel is. And so to cut to the chase, I can expand on the definition um, more or less as you wish, but the central um, claim in the New Testament about the gospel would be that the gospel is that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Christ. Now, of course, we all recognize it as a truth already, but maybe we don't understand how that could be a saving truth, and that's part of the problem. And so as I summarize the gospel, I most often will say that Jesus is the forgiving king. That's that's actually the the, uh, the most essential gospel message, and we would find that, I think, um, well, well, well articulated in a number of different places in Scripture. Yeah, no doubt. Well, I want to encourage our listeners to to pick up the book and read it because the way that you emphasize Jesus's kingship and the way the Christ is not is not just a name for him, but but he is the king, and that is part of and the center of the gospel um, is that he's a king bringing a kingdom. Um, so I love that that kind of shift in frame. And one thing that it does for me is it it kind of takes me out of the main character role of the gospel that Jesus came to do something for me, and that's what the gospel is. Versus Jesus is the king, and I get to participate in what he is doing in the world as the king bringing a kingdom. Um, so that's that's a radical shift in thinking from my upbringing to now. Um, and, and I'm really grateful for that. And one thing that, that also really stuck with me in your book was, was the glory cycle. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping we can, we we're recording this for, for YouTube and I'm hoping that we can put the, the glory cycle on. Um, so, so folks that are watching can see it, the graphic that you have in the book. Um, because again, as I grew up, glory was something that is only attributed to God. Glory is not something that belongs to human beings. Um, so can you talk us through the glory cycle and how glory applies not just to, to God, but to humans? Yeah. So the word glory is one of those words that has strong English language associations, even though they're vague. Um, but I think whenever people hear the word glory, they tend to think of um, triumph, sparkling lights, um, like he heaven, um, you know, and it's, it's strongly associated with those kinds of ideas. In Greek and in Hebrew, um, the languages of, of scripture, the original languages, um, the, the words kavod, the words doxa, um, these are the words in Hebrew and Greek respectively for glory, intend in something closer to involving um, reputation, fame. And we often don't think of those in connection with glory. We might sometimes, with regard to sport or something like that, when somebody wins a great victory, they've they've, they've you know they've got glory or something along those lines. Those those associations are a lot stronger in scripture um, that we would have ideas of fame, especially associated with glory. So um, yeah, the question becomes as we think about why the gospel, why did God give the gospel in the first place? Um, I think that the church's answer has usually been um, well because 
because we need forgiveness of sins. On the one hand, that's true. We do need it, and that is a purpose of the gospel, but it's not actually the deepest purpose of the gospel, and uh, the purposes of the gospel are multifaceted in Scripture. So, um, yeah, when we think about then the glory business, um, also whenever people talk about salvation, they've tended to say that, like, well, okay, salvation is about glory, but it's about God's glory alone. And that's even one of the, you know, the five kind of great solas of the Reformation would be uh, to speak about glory to God alone. Um, the problem with that is that's not actually what Scripture teaches. Again, um, Scripture te- does teach that God um, should be appropriately glorified and honored, but that humans participate in the glory. Um, and there's an appropriate human participation in God's glory. So the idea that God would get the glory alone would involve, like, on the one hand, humans recognizing that that everything that they have comes from as, as a gift from God. So there is some truth in it, but it's also misleading if we don't think that humans are intended for glory, uh, because indeed that that's a, actually a core purpose of the gospel. So trying to articulate that all correctly is a major task in um, in the book. And I can get into this even more if you want to dive into the, the, the two-sided nature of glory. If you want me to walk through the glory cycle more specifically, I'm happy to go where you lead if you want me to do more on this topic. Yeah, if you could do that, that would be great. I think it's, it's such a transformative idea. Um, as we're talking about how following Jesus forms us as human beings, this idea that we are to carry God's glory in a sense, not just give him glory, but bear his glory to the world, um, I think is, is very helpful. So if you could walk us through the, the glory cycle. Sure. So yeah, so the glory cycle begins by just an articulation that God himself is intrinsically glorious, um, that God has a glory that belongs to his name, that is appropriate um, to his properties and to his characteristics as God, um, that he has a certain fame um, and a certain intrinsic honor that belongs to him, and that could never be impeached or never be taken away. And so um, it's because it's something that attends to his very his very nature, um, and it's apart from his creation. Um, and so on the one hand, we would see articulations of, of that in Scripture where it talks about the glory due his name and things like that. On the other hand, um, there is a a dimension of glory that's ascribed or um, that we might say is an acknowledged glory. And so humans need to give God the glory. And so scripture also calls out for um, humans to glorify God or to ascribe glory to him. And if we fail to do so, then somehow God is lacking in his glory. So we see that the word glory has sort of this complexity, even as it connects to God. And this is what I call the double-sided nature of glory or the two, I don't remember what the term I used in the book was, the two-faced, I don't remember what I called it, the two faces of glory, maybe I said. Um, and uh, anyway, so this this other face of glory, though, is something that God can actually lose. God can fail to receive the glory that is the glory that's appropriate to him because humans don't give it to him. So um, as we're thinking about all that, then we, we can then talk about the glory cycle more accurately. As God makes humans then, and in so doing, he gives them a derivative share of his glory simply as part of their constitutive nature. Like we are made in God's image. And as as uh, the psalmist speaks about this in Psalm 8, for instance, it speaks about how you know we were made a little lower than the heavenly beings or the angels, depending on the translation there. Uh, and then in so doing, God gave us glory. Um, and the purpose of that glory is to rule creation on God's behalf, that we are to be stewards over creation. So we have an appropriate glory that is 
something that is derived from God as we're made in his image, but is also something that is to be active or dynamic. We are to image God into the world or bear his glory out into the world. Uh, and so there are lots of authors who have written on this recently on this theme. I'm not alone. Um, having, you know, I only touch on this a little bit in the book, but Carmen Joy Imes uh, in um, a couple of different books, one called um, um, uh, what's it, what's it called? Bearing uh, bearing God's image, I think, or oh, sorry, bearing God's name, and then being uh, yeah, God's image, I think, are the two books. Um, but yeah, many many people are writing and talking on, around these topics of the image of God. So the the problem happens in the glory cycle, of course, when humans then um, instead of bearing the glory actively as God intends into the world, and in so doing, bringing God fame and ourselves fame, right? As we find our appropriate honor in within creation, instead we cast down the crowns. Right, we throw away our honor, we throw away our glory, um, and so Paul speaks about the sin problem as not just a sin problem, but sin is a problem because it actually disrupts our glory. Um, and so, um, for instance, you can think of the very famous passage in Romans: "All have sinned and have done what?" And, and it's it's not just that all have sinned, but they are lacking the glory of God, right? And so Paul, as he points out, the problem with sin is not just that sin has to be taken care of in its own right; um, it's that sin is is a problem because it hinders us from doing what we're made to do, which is to bear the glory. So um, whenever we don't see that, we don't see the deepest purposes of the gospel, which are restorative, right? We we then begin to think that the deepest purpose of the gospel is just to erase my sin problem. No, the deepest purpose of the gospel is actually to restore your glory so that you can be who God wanted you to be within his creation. And when we miss that, we, we, we misunderstand the gospel and the fundamentals of salvation. And that's what's happened in the church. I think there's been a failure to attend to these I to, to these portions of scripture sufficiently. But the good news is, then is that in the midst of the fall, God sends the Son, and He does what? He takes on human flesh, and so that we can begin to see His glory, which is the glory of the Father. Right. So there's a restorative dimension to the incarnation, and that's why it's central to the gospel too. So when I say that Jesus is the saving King, I'm talking about all the things that attend His His progression to kingship. So He had to come and take on human flesh, so we could begin to see who He is so we could see his glory. Um, and in so doing, then gazing upon him leads to our transformation. So it's as we gaze upon him uh, and we give our loyalty to him, on the one hand, the power of sin over us is, is broken, we're liberated, but there's also a transformative dimension as we gaze on him that we're being changed into his likeness, and that's actually essential to our salvation. It's not something that's like just you know an, uh, an interesting aside. Uh, and again, when the church misses the transformative dimension, mention of salvation, they tend to reduce salvation down to a transaction. And that's a dangerous, um, again, um, it's been a dangerous hazard for the church. And then finally, then after we gaze on the king, um, ultimately in the final um, assessment of all things, uh, those who have gazed upon the king have have expressed their loyalty or their allegiance or faith in him, right? Then um, as that, that gazing has transformed them, then they become fit to rule alongside Christ um, as co-rulers over creation under his sovereignty in some way, uh, but also having an appropriate authority as kings and queens um, uh, over the domains that God entrusts us to within his creation. So then creation, again, is receiving the glory that um, is appropriate to it um, through God and through humans. So uh, that's that's in brief the glory cycle. I can I can um, expand on other aspects of that as you wish, more on the incarnation or discipleship or whatever you want.
Yeah, what a, what a beautiful picture. I think when we talk about the gospel as I have a sin problem, but Jesus died on the cross to to fix my sin problem, and I get to go to heaven one day because of that, that doesn't say a lot to our formation as humans. What kind of people should we be becoming because Jesus fixed our sin problem for us? Um, and, and sometimes we can just throw out trite little things like go and sin no more. Like my sin is taken care of now, so I should go and sin no more. Or Paul saying, well, if, if grace increases where sin increases, should we keep sinning? By no means. But that's about all we have in that in that picture versus the, the image and the imagination that you're painting for us is, is this image of why Paul in, in Romans 8 would say that creation groans for sons and daughters to be revealed because sons and daughters of God were created in the first place to rule and subdue creation, to nurture and cultivate, right? And so, so creation cries out for human beings to properly rule what they have improperly ruled and cast down their crowns. Um, and I hope that's just a big vision for those listening. And again, want to encourage them to pick up your book because it's just this idea of, of the human calling is so much bigger than we've often believed it is. Um, we're not just worms that, that God has to save, but we are actually his chosen kings and queens to rule on his behalf, right? And that's a totally different way of, of thinking about the Bible's story. Absolutely right. And yeah, and maybe I could just piggyback on that by speaking. I spoke about the the centrality of the incarnation of the gospel, something that we often like, you know, whenever whenever you have that, that basic story about, well, Jesus died for my sins, and so then I can get to go to heaven. Like the incarnation is not part of the gospel, but it clearly is in the Bible, right? Again and again, um, we see the incarnation as part of the gospel. So um, that helps make sense of the transformative dimension. But the other thing that gets left off um, uh, is that after we often will talk about the cross, maybe the resurrection is the neat miracle that confirms, you know, that Jesus was really who he claimed to be. It's like kind of the happy story for us as Christians, but we don't see the theological significance of the resurrection and how it leads to uh, Jesus's rule and how that's actually part of the gospel too, right? And it's actually, actually, I would argue that's actually the climax of the gospel would be that Jesus has now is now reigning um, because Jesus has to be raised from the dead as uh, this is the first act of new creation as he's now the living one, but he's living um, for a specific purpose so that he can fulfill human destiny, right? So that he can be exalted to the right hand of God and he can now serve as our, our king and our great high priest at the right hand of God. And in so doing, right, he's actually doing what humans were intended to do all along. There's now a human who's actually ruling creation again. And so the, the, the resurrection in order to reign is essential to the gospel because without that, then there's no human ruling creation properly anymore. And there's nothing for us to gaze upon fully, right? Like our human transformation depends on there being a human. Human, who is actually ruling creation on God's behalf and doing what God intended humans to do all along. Now creation's under proper care again, or there's now a human ruling it. Um, so Jesus, uh, w- one way of thinking about it is Jesus as the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Like when we talk about like the, the time before Jesus, we can't really say that that was Jesus reigning. It was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and it was the, the Word who was reigning before the Word took on human flesh as the man Jesus. Or it's at the moment of incarnation incarnation, that the the eternal Son of God is united with our humanity, and he then is Jesus, right, uh, as he then takes on human flesh as the person of Jesus, fully God, fully human. And it's at that moment, then, that there's this possibility of creation being ruled by both God and human at the same time. But before, it's only God ruling. Like, it's not God ruling through a human in, in, in the way that, that creation is intended to rule. So his exaltation of the right hand of God 
God is essential because now Jesus is reigning as fully God and fully human. And it's that and fully human part that changes from the Old Testament to the new, right? Now, um, the Son of God is ruling as the human Son of God too, not just the divine Son of God. And that fulfills God's purposes for creation. Yeah. And and I hope people might come back and listen to this podcast around Christmas and, and think about the, the full weight of the incarnation and what that means. Um, I think we also talk about the cross and resurrection every year with, with Good Friday and Easter. Um, but as you talk about Jesus being seated at the right hand of God. Um, I wish we paid a little bit more attention to the Ascension and maybe celebrated the Ascension Day every year, um, the way we celebrate the inauguration and the, the crucifixion and the resurrection, because as you said, it matters greatly that there is a, a human that is fully God and fully man ruling over creation. He ascended to the throne at the right hand of God. Um, I think I think it was Carmen Imes in her most recent book. Well, there's Ascension Sunday on the calendar. Exactly, but you're right. We usually um, pass it right Ascension over. Ascension Sunday is on the calendar, but it needs it needs to be celebrated, right? A little bit more, and maybe we need to start giving gifts on Ascension Sunday. Yes, and, absolutely. And pay attention to it. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Um, yeah, I think I think Carmen Imes said that there is a human in the Trinity now, um, which is just this provocative, incredible thought um, that. God's intention as with the the image of God creating humans in the image of God. Well, now there's a, a human image in the Trinity, right? Um, so as we, you've talked a lot about viewing um, and transformative viewing. And this, as, as we've talked about, is a podcast about how we are conformed to become more like Jesus. Um, so how would you say that happens? How do we become more like Jesus by viewing him in his glory? Yeah, and so um, this is chapter five in the book is royal transformation, and so it sort of walks through what the Bible teaches about um, the process by which we come to be conformed to the image. Um, so it all obviously has to begin with the incarnation, right, as we have to have the image sent, right, so that we can actually begin to view God. And then there's the invitation that is offered by Jesus as he asks those uh, who are following him to come and see, right, um, like drawing from um, the early narrative of the Gospel of John, right, where we have some disciples following behind Jesus. Um, Jesus spins on them and says, what do you want? And he said, and, and um, you know, they, they want to know where he's staying, Right, um, and Jesus invites them to come and see. Right, they had there's this opportunity to enter into his pattern of life and to see it. So I think that we have to do the same. Like that's that's an we should read that as an invitation to all would be disciples, to everyone who is interested in um, coming to be conformed to his image. Like we have to, on the one hand, desire to approach him, and then we have to begin to see. And there can be obstacles to each. Um, and I, I think the obstacle sometimes to coming, right, uh, to approaching him can be um, all the obstacles you might think of, like our busyness, our, uh, you know, our, 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 our lack of desire to really give away our own sovereignty, right, to really um, to give our sovereignty over to another and to not really believe that Jesus' uh, way is the best way for humans to live, uh, but to instead think, no, actually, the best way for me to live is to live with myself as the king rather than to trust that Jesus' um, commands and ways of life and his recommendations are going to um, actually result in the good for me. And so I think that's um, an obstacle. There's also um, the disguises that our culture places on Jesus that are also a uh, a major um, you know, challenge to try to overcome. And I think it's just getting, getting worse just because of the wash of information um, that it can be harder to identify the true Jesus as everybody wants Jesus on their team uh, because even if people don't um, 
aren't particularly interested in following Jesus, you know you get some social capital if you can even if you can say, well, Jesus is kind of on my team too, um, even for people who don't have any real interest in following Jesus. So you end up with you know the LGBTQ Jesus and the gun rights Jesus and suburban Jesus and uh, you know you name it. You you can find a Jesus of any kind of shape and form you want if you if that's what you're after in culture. So we have to uh, indeed come and we have to see right. We have to read the scriptures are for ourselves in order to uh, discern what kind of uh, life Jesus lived, what he was calling people to do. Um, and, you know, um, the Gospels are our primary resource for doing so. They're indispensable. So we have to return to the portrait of Jesus there again and again. And when we do, um, I think the Sermon on the Mount is a great place to start as we, we discover Jesus is calling us to uh, to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, to to turn the other cheek, uh, not in just in order to let people beat on us, um, but as a way of actually um, resisting evil uh, while maintaining dignity. And we learn all kinds of things about about Jesus through um, paying attention to his life example. So um, I think we need to come and see. Yeah. Can you say a little bit more about resisting evil while maintaining dignity? That's a, a beautiful line. Yeah. Um, well, again, that's, uh, you know, drawing on Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. And yeah, I, I think that there's sometimes misunderstanding around the turn the other cheek command. Um, and it's been much analyzed, right? If, if somebody strikes you on the right cheek, you know, turn to him the other also. And um, like, you know, analyzing whether or not like turning, like, what does it mean? Like to, it, Jesus doesn't say, I guess, like, okay, if somebody strikes you on the right cheek, well then um, curl up in a ball, lay on the ground and hand over your lunch money, right? Jesus isn't saying that if a bully like a, attacks you, um, then in some way you just, um, you just capitulate. Um, nor is he saying if somebody strikes you on the right cheek, grab, grab out your sword and hack his head off. Um, so there does seem to be some kind of third way, um, and especially um, those would be part of like the nonviolence tradition, I think have been especially careful and thoughtful in trying to analyze this, the Mennonites and, and other groups that um, would be a part of the Anabaptist heritage. And they speak, they like to speak about a third way here then um, of, of a passive nonviolent uh, sorry, I didn't want to say passive, of an active nonviolent resistance so that you are still asserting your dignity. You're still asserting your humanity. And in a way, you're calling them to shame. So if somebody strikes me on the right cheek, um, if instead of curling up in a ball and handing over my, my lunch money, I stand up and I, and, I, and, I, and, I sh and I put my other cheek forward, there's a way of saying that like even if you do violence to me, you can't break me fully. Um, and that shouldn't you be ashamed of the way in which you are um, you are you are executing this violence on me? Aren't you, shouldn't shouldn't you be ashamed? And isn't your own humanity being de degraded more than mine? I think is the statement you're making. I'm not an expert on such things. Um, that's 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 probably the best I can do as a quick uh, a quick analysis. Yeah, well that that idea struck me because I was actually just reading about NT Wright talks about how because Jesus was speaking to Israelites who were under Roman oppression, um this this would have been an image that was probably familiar to them where almost definitely if you're being struck on the right cheek, uh most Roman soldiers are going to be striking with their right hand, not their left hand, and so they're going to be hitting you with the back of their right hand. Um so NT Wright is saying that this is like standing up and saying, now go ahead and do it again, but do it as an equal, not as an inferior. Um, so this, this dignity in where you're, again, you're not, you're not returning violence with violence, but you're saying you can go ahead and strike me again, but, 
but maintain my dignity as somebody who God has created in his image, right? Um, because we should have this, this idea that every human is inherently dignified, um, not just me, but also the, the person striking me. Um, so yeah, I think that's a beautiful beautiful idea for, for Christians to carry. It's, it is. Yeah. And there's been some dispute about whether it's a backhand or a forehand and all of that, you know, with, uh, with the striking. But I think the overall point is clear, right? That it's, it's certainly likely that it's a, a claim to reassert dignity. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually, I just read, um, Dr. John Barkley was writing about how in Philippians two, it says, have this attitude like the attitude of Christ. And then it goes on to talk about his humility and his servanthood. Um, but that, we usually stop there and say, so the attitude is is humility and servanthood and selflessness. But the rest of Philippians says, therefore, God gave him the name above every other name that every knee shall bow before him. Um, and so there's an element of, of this maintaining dignity while humbly serving, right? Um, knowing that the end of the glory cycle is coming, even as we humbly serve and, and give our lives even potentially unto death, um, that there there's an end that comes with glory and, and imaging God in the world. Um and so, yeah, it's this kind of paradoxical idea of simultaneously thinking less of myself, but also knowing that I have dignity, um, but but not lording that over other people and, and asserting their dignity as well. Um, yeah, there's there's so much we can learn when we when we look at the beauty of Jesus and what a truly radical person he is and was, um, and and I think the idea of of focusing on him and, and beholding him. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world um, is awesome. And you had a, you had an image in the book that, that struck me where you talked about how you got rid of your TV for a while and spent that time memorizing scripture. And you talked about how you did that as a form of image replacement, how you wanted to to see something new by taking away one thing that you were seeing and and changing what you were seeing. Um, so, so as we talk about formation, how we are being formed as disciples of Jesus Christ, um, what would you say about that experience? Yeah, so this was when I was a, a college student, my senior year in college. I lived by myself, um, and I, we kind of I kind of lived on the outskirts of Spokane, Washington, and I rented a basement, uh, daylight basement, from an, uh, a couple who was, you know, they weren't elderly, but you know, kind of more middle aged couple. And so I was living out there by myself, and so it was very, very isolating and lonely. You know, first time in my life I'd ever lived by myself too, and so I was just kind of going insane. Um, and so I, you know, of course, like every other, um, good American had a TV. Um, and that was a way I was, you know, finding, I was entertaining myself was just to watch TV. And, um, I was like, this isn't good for me. Um, I don't like the kind of way it's making me think about life and reality and what it portrays, what, what it, what it suggests my interest should be all the time. And so I decided, you know, I'm going to just try not even having a TV. I'm just going to throw this baby away and I'm going to try to read. Um, so I tried that for a while and that helped like in the sense of like, I wasn't now thinking about the same things, but I was just still too bored. I mean, you can only read for so long. So I tried to um, grab some disciplines that would help me. And so as part of that, I, I did a lot of scripture memorization just as um, to a degree, like I was, I, I was wanting to stave off my loneliness and boredom, but also I, I realized like, no, I need new images. I need better images. And uh, so that was something that was huge for me during that time. I, I think during that time, I memorized Philippians, Colossians, the Sermon on the Mount, the first half of Romans. I did a lot of memorization. I uh, don't remember all of it now, you know, as my memorization is not uh, as fresh as it once was. 
But um, yeah, but I, I found that my mind was just thinking about scripture constantly when I did that. And I think that was a good life lesson for me um, because uh, A, it was just transformative in, 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 in the immediate moment. But beyond that, it helped me to realize the degree to which we need to have a different vision. Like we like um, Dallas Willard talks about a vision intention means kind of way of spiritual uh, of spiritual transformation and that we often maybe focus too much on like what should I do what like what are my means without like having the motivation set by the vision and having our images changed by the vision and that's the come and see part right like we need to see Jesus and if we don't ever see him in such a way that our our longings and desires begin to change, then we won't ever be motivated to change. If I don't really, if I haven't seen Jesus enough to to realize like his way of life is deeply attractive. And then if I could be like him, I would be free from things that burden me, from sins that are attached to me, from um, poor life choices, from selfishness. If I don't see that if I came to be like him, it would be a better version of me and a better life and I would be actually flourishing then are we going to ever be motivated to change? Like, are we going to ever like come to a firm intention and are we going to ever really care about the means? Uh, and I think the answer is no. I think, I think Willard is right. We really do have to be careful to cast vision for ourselves. But how do we do that? Uh, really through image replacement. Like we have to see different images of Jesus so that we can contemplate them and come to find them to be attractive. And that's when uh, transformation begins to move forward for us. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, I think that's, that's so helpful. And wherever somebody is listening to this, whether you're sitting in your house or working on shores or driving your car, like what are ways that you can envision Jesus, um, behold Jesus, picture Jesus and be conformed into that image as you behold him. Um, I think that's a the powerful image that it's not just about what we do, but it's about, it's about what we see. I say that's one of the things I love about, you know, um, the Catholic Orthodox tradition of iconography, right. Is the the power of seeing Jesus, right. And wanting to display him in a virtuous way and like placing those and images of the saints, right. As a way of inspiring. Now, of course, as a Protestant, like I, I object to the way that's gotten attached to certain Catholic ideas about praying to the saints or through the saints and things like that. But nevertheless, the idea itself of like, of seeing images of the saints, right? Um, we are, I think that's some uh, uh, one way in which the Protestant um, sector of the church has really um, lost out on a spiritual wealth is that like we have no images, right? Like images are looked down upon and there's a naivety about the degree to which we need to have holy images in front of us to inspire us, stories of the saints, stories about people, of, the, of, of, of the, the, the great lives people have lived in Christ um, are an, a rich resource for the church um, as we think we contemplate the ways in which these people have been conformed to Christ, right? Um, it's, it's, I think, uh, one of the things that we do is with our children and for ourselves is we intentionally do read stories um, about um, uh, heroes of the faith. So I think as you write about all these things, and even now you're speaking and I can hear somebody saying, but you're breaking the Ten Commandments by having images, right? Um, and I'm sure you have people that push against you and say, no, the gospel is about forgiveness. You're, you're putting too much into this. And I'm sure you have some pushback occasionally because you're, you're challenging ideas that have long been held in the evangelical imagination. Um, so what do you say to critiques and pushbacks like that? Well, obviously the issue of images in the church is something that has um, 
been fought out through church history, the iconoclast controversies, right, um, in the Eastern Church. And um, the church at that time, I think, correctly realized that the incarnation dignifies creation in a way that um, makes it so that the image is useful to us, like like the word becomes human flesh, right, and makes his dwelling among us. And in so doing, there's a dignification of all creation that like creation itself, the material matter of creation that constitutes Jesus' body is something that is used to actually image God in ways that we can't ignore. So I do think that the prohibition against images, for instance, um, would be problematic in light of the incarnation. The incarnation does change things in that way, and I do think the church got that right in the iconoclast controversy. So, um, yes, of course, it's something that as the, the Protestant church um, like was mixed, or there was there was um, the Protestant church in its DNA is not anti icon. It uh, only was in certain sectors, right? We have um, like within Zwingli's Reformation. Like Zwingli was fairly anti um, icons, uh, but Calvin and Luther, like um, it, it was, it was a more complex picture on the other side of the, you know, other other portions of the Reformation where it wasn't so intensely anti iconic. Um, so uh, yeah, anyway, uh, that's it's a it's a big issue that the church has um, yeah, discussed over its history. But for those who are unaware of the of the like long discussion the church had over it. Uh, then you need to read a little bit on the East and uh, especially 7th, 8th, 9th century uh, Christianity. Yeah, that's helpful. Learning from the stories of the saints and the heroes of the faith, but also learning from church history, um, not just Western church history, but Eastern church history as well. Um, so I kind of want to finish off our conversation today. You had a this idea in the book about how the church is often, the, the reason people often give for the reason why they're not participating in a church is hypocrisy. Um, and you say that hypocrisy often comes from simply trusting as in Jesus as Savior versus living with allegiance to Jesus as the King. Um, so can you flesh that out a little bit? Yeah, so the, yeah, the number one reason people give for um, not being part of the church today is hypocrisy, both insiders and outsiders. So people who are, have never been part of the church, the reason why is hypocrisy. People who are inside the church and leave it, they leave because of hypocrisy. Um, yeah, and I think it's a distorted gospel that has resulted in hypocrisy, or at least contributed significantly to it. Obviously, hypocrisy um, is going to happen um, no matter what, because there's always going to be sin in the church. There's going to be some disconnect between what we want to do, what we say we believe, and what we're trying to live out, and the actual execution. So I think on the one hand, like we have to be real that we all are inconsistent, Christians, non-Christians, everybody, in, in living out our ideals um, because of the sin problem. But I do think that a faulty gospel does contribute greatly to hypocrisy, because all you need to do is believe certain factoids about the universe under um, a certain um, understanding of the gospel, or maybe slightly more than that, you need to um, believe certain factoids, and then you also need to um, be convinced in your own mind that they're true for me, not just true things about the universe, but also true for me, right? So that you believe Jesus died for your sins. It's not very holistic, and it doesn't demand all of you, right? And so you can be, one way of thinking about it is you can be sinning, you know, uh, in, in your mind, in all kinds of areas of life, and making all kinds of bad choices with your body, but you're like, as long as I had this little part 
part here that says that I believe that Jesus is indeed my Savior and that he's died for my sins, for indeed mine, right? Uh, and I trust that to be true, then I'm okay. I can keep doing all this, keep having these lustful thoughts here. It's okay. Like that's there's some tension there, but it's all all right. I'm good with God because of this. I got this little factoid, right? Um, and the that's really not, I think, how Scripture wants to understand what faith is, um, as faith is more of a uh, embodied loyalty to King Jesus. It's not something you just do with your mind, but it takes all of your mind and all of your body, um, and that you then are declaring your loyalty to King Jesus. Notice if that's your gospel, that I need to give my loyalty to King Jesus, that demands all of you, right? It doesn't just demand this little tiny factoid, like I have to give my mind, my body all over to King Jesus. Um, and if you understand, that's actually how God is saving me. It's through the process of me coming to be conformed to the image of King Jesus as I give my loyalty to him each day. That's how God is saving me. It's not just that he's giving a transaction and applying his blood to me in a singular moment, but um, it's that he, that as I've confessed loyalty to him, I do enter into his forgiveness. Sin is broken. His blood is applied to me, but it's something I have to keep persisting in because salvation is about restore, restoration and about transformation, and I have to keep pressing into that transformation. That undercuts hypocrisy, I think. Yeah, Jesus is making us into the kind of people that fit into his kingdom when he returns. Um, but that is only possible with with full body allegiance. Um, yeah, so how do we work our how do we work our bodies into our practices um, as we as we seek this? So kind of we talked about the the vision side, but what's the what's the physical embodied side? Yeah, well, the physical embodied side um, would be part of what Willard, you know, speaks about in terms of the means, especially. Um, and I don't know that I have um, any spectacularly new recommendations beyond uh, those that are the classic disciplines of the church. You know, we need to pray, we need to fast, we need to we need to serve the poor, we need to um, be involved in you know the various uh, you know spirit led capacities of serving the church um, that. Uh, are mentioned throughout Scripture, so um, I don't I don't know that there's a special answer to that, uh, other than to say that without setting um, I think a good vision and intention behind those things, then often the means lack staying power for us. Like um, we're like praying out of a sense of like, well, I know I should pray because it's like what people say Christians should do, but it's not like out of a, like a sense that this is what loyalty to King Jesus looks like. And I know this is part of how I'm being transformed and my goodness, that's attractive to be transformed is so attractive. Like without having that, it's so attractive part, then prayer just becomes like a duty that, you know, like, okay, like I'm doing it because I should, but I don't really see the point. And soon you lose steam and lose interest in the project because it wasn't ever like developed through a vision or an intention. So I don't have any specific recommendations for means other than uh, the classic spiritual disciplines that, you know, you can read about with Dallas Willard or Richard Foster or, or um, people who have greater expertise on the spiritual disciplines, um, uh, I think are good resources. That's fantastic, Matthew. I, I'm so grateful for your time. I'm so grateful for your thought and your careful study of the scripture um, and for the way that you hold up these ideas for us in ways that are clear and, and not just academic, but also valuable for the layperson, the person that's just sitting in church on a Sunday morning to help us understand that the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of who Jesus is as the Messiah, um, faith as loyalty, glory is something that we bear in the world. Um, I think all of these ideas are, are so helpful as we seek to be discipled into the image of Christ. Um, and so any, any final words that, that you have for us? Stay loyal to King Jesus. 
That's what it's all about right there. I love it. Uh, where can we find you online? Where can people stay in touch with you? Um, yeah, you can friend request me on Facebook. I'm more active there probably than any other social media platform. I do have a Twitter account, but or whatever it's called now, X. Yeah. But yeah. Um, I don't use it very often. I usually just use it to announce stuff connected to new books or things like that. Um, and then I have a website, uh, MatthewWBates.com. So those would be the main ways I think you could find me online. Fantastic. And the most recent book is Why the Gospel. So everybody should should pick that up and, and read it. Um, thank you so much for your time today, Matthew. I really enjoyed this conversation and I think our listeners will as well. Thank you for listening in to this episode of the Living Room Disciple podcast with Matthew Bates. Make sure to pick up his book, Why the Gospel. And I pray that this episode has helped you gain a vision for who Jesus is and your purpose as a follower of Jesus. If you have thoughts or questions for us, check out our website, livingroomdisciple.com. And for more interviews like this one, you can support our mission financially through Patreon. Thanks again for listening to the Living Room Disciple podcast, where discipleship finds a home.